Welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Nick. And I'm your co-host, Yusuf. And today we are here with Chris. Chris, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Chris. Nice to be on the show with everyone. Um, I'm a master's student at Western. I've been here for about two years in geophysics. So specifically looking at earthquake seismology and hazards, earthquake hazards. So So Chris, why don't you tell us a bit about what seismology as a study entails and what specific aspect of that you look at? So it can go a whole bunch of different ways. You can look specifically at, you know, if an earthquake happens, what sort of waves are you getting? Uh, And you can go into the nitty gritty of the math of it, or you can go into earthquake hazards, which is a bit more of what I do, which is if an earthquake happens, depending on where you are, how is that earthquake going to affect you? So different areas based on what the geology could be underneath you will affect what you're going to feel. And the other thing you could also look at is um, doing hazard analyses. So when you Google uh, earthquake risk in Canada and you pull up a map and it says, what is the hazard in a different area? It'll say, given X number of years, say in 50 years, what is the percent probability of an earthquake of a given acceleration or peak ground acceleration is what they call it we'll just say of a given strength, what is the percent chance of it happening in that amount of time? That's usually what you'll Google. Now to make those maps, a lot goes into it, so. So Chris, that's all very fascinating. Um, I was wondering, is there a specific location or area or city that is is, uh, of particular interest to you of your research for your geological mapping? Yeah, so I'm, part of an actually quite a bit larger project uh, as part of my supervisor, Dr. Sherry Molnar, and it's part of a big microzonation mapping project for Vancouver. Um, So every big city in Canada and the States and really all over the world, if there's a big city that has some sort of inherent risk of an earthquake, usually you'll do what's called microzonation mapping, which is dividing the city into a whole bunch of little areas and say, if an earthquake were to happen, which areas would be more or less at risk of the ground liquefying or uh, landslides or specifically what I study, which is ground motion amplification. And we can talk about that a little bit later, but you need those maps in order to tell first responders, uh, engineers, people who work in city planning, which areas need different building codes, different responses in terms of an emergency. And for some reason, the level of microzonation mapping in Vancouver is very low compared to say Montreal or Toronto, which has a lower hazard. There's less of a chance of a big earthquake happening in those cities. And I mean, I mean, everyone's heard of Vancouver, get ready for the big one, so on and so forth, but we haven't prepared for it the same way Montreal or Toronto has, which is kind of silly when you think about it. 
Is there like any reason why that hasn't happened yet? I think it's because Vancouver hasn't historically in the recent past seen a lot of big activity. I mean, Ottawa, for example, there was an earthquake in 2013 and Quebec, um, there's the whole Charlevoix active seismic zone. So they're used to seeing or getting earthquakes, little ones every so often. And when you experience it yourself, people tend to be more active about it and proactive about putting in resources and things like that. Whereas for Vancouver, we just say, well, it's coming at some point, but we don't know when. So everyone kind of just puts it on the back burner. And I think that's why it hasn't been looked at, but lately they've been more proactive, which is part of this project, why it's happening. So Chris, um, you mentioned, I think, ground amplifications in particular. Uh, how did you get interested in, in studying or focusing your research in that particular area? Um, I'll try to make the, the long story short, but when I got into earthquake seismology or just seismology in general, because you can use seismics for oil and gas exploration, you can look at the hazard side of it. Um, I was working for a while in micro seismics. So looking at detecting and locating very small earthquakes. It could be at a mining site or oil and gas reservoirs or um, anywhere that you want to monitor seismicity. And when I was there, I kind of started thinking, well, how does the geology of the area affect where those might be located or what we're seeing? And that got me looking a little bit into earthquake hazards and specifically what's called site effects or the different types of hazards that come from an earthquake at a site. So like liquefaction, landslides and ground motion amplification. And that got me searching for a supervisor that might be looking into that sort of thing. And then that brought me to, to Western specifically for this project. And these maps that, so are you, you're involved in the creation of these maps? Yeah. So whenever you make a, a microzonation map, you're mapping a specific hazard. So you're saying in this little area, we might have a higher risk of a landslide or a lesser risk of a landslide. So you'll have a whole map of Vancouver with a bunch of designated areas based on the relative risk of having a landslide. So ground motion amplification is the one that I'm looking at. So the reason we need that is, let's say you have a really soft, layer of soil above really hard bedrock and you have an earthquake x number of kilometers away and as that earthquake goes from the bedrock into this soft soil it slows down and the waves get really big so once they hit the surface then you get a lot bigger ground shaking and a good example of that of that is in 1985 the Mexico City earthquake, there was an earthquake that was 500 kilometers away. And usually that's not a big risk. It only had a, um, what's called a moment magnitude of 5.0. Usually that can be iffy, but it's usually not a huge deal. That's about what it was in Ottawa in 2013. 
but because Mexico City lies on a lake basin, so it's just a big basin full of really soft sediments, as that earthquake went from the hard bedrock into the soft sediments, then you had huge amplification. So this magnitude 5.1 earthquake was incredibly devastating because this earthquake amplified so much and then you had liquefaction of soils and things like that. So that's super important to know where that might happen. I mean, Vancouver, the whole lower area of Vancouver, Richmond and Delta is the Fraser River Delta where you have soft sediments overlying bedrock. And there's a transition zone as you get to North Vancouver where you're just getting into this hard granite and, and the mountains. So it, you have to see where is most at risk based on how thick those soft soil layers are. Wow. Um, so in terms of your met methods of analysis, in terms of the tools you might use to uh, construct the maps, um, would they be somewhat invasive when, when you're trying to uh, uh, make images of the set of the ge geological spaces. Yeah, so the whole idea behind this mapping and the way we go about it is you want to divide the subsurface into layers and say, okay, we have a layer of soft soil over a layer of hard rock. And depending on how dense it is or how stiff, especially, that'll change how quickly earthquakes move through it or acoustic waves move through that layer. So we want to measure the velocity at each layer. So we're saying, okay, this layer has a velocity of 300 meters per second, and this one has 1500 meters per second. So we need a way of measuring the velocity of waves going through that. And there's a whole bunch of ways you can do that. Uh, a lot of them are really invasive. So you could drill a, a big borehole as deep as you want to go and then at each i don't know a few centimeters um essentially send out an acoustic wave see how long it takes to get back and then at, do that at each few centimeters and say okay here 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 this is what the velocity is Drilling a borehole is really expensive. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars based on what depth you're going to. And usually you won't do it unless you're specifically building something. Right. Right. So it's not necessarily feasible to do that in as many places as you really need to get a good map. So we do what's called non-invasive seismic measurements. And that's using geophones so whenever we record an oh, earthquake really on anything cool. yeah so whenever you record an earthquake you would use what's called a geophone which is just essentially a little mass on a spring that records vibrations takes the vibration puts it into a voltage and then you see the big trace on the screen when you think of an earthquake that that big wiggle um so we use these geophones in a number of different ways to listen to what the ground is giving us. You can do that by just listening to ambient noise, which is 
vibrations that could come from the wind or the cars or people walking far away. And you can use that to do a whole lot of processing and then get layers of the earth based on their velocity. Um, there's a lot that goes into that and there's a lot of different things that are uncertain about it, but you try to minimize that uncertainty to get the best profile of the velocity as you can. So you can do that, like I said, by just listening to ambient noise, or you can do it by creating your own source of noise with just a big sledgehammer on a steel plate, for example, is one way. You set up a bunch of geophones, which are just, like I said, the little microphones to listen to the record to the vibrations and put a big steel plate at the end of it and then just hit the steel plate as hard as you can with the sledgehammer a few times and if you've ever done any sort of seismics then you'll know there's seismic reflection techniques and seismic refraction techniques and we do something a little different which is looking at surface waves um, and if you're on campus at western at any point not this spring had to be postponed, but during the fall season and most spring seasons, we do a hammer swing competition with the Society of Exploration Geophysics chapter, um, where you can try that yourself. Hit a sledgehammer with a steel plate and see how it records and see what the recording looks like, and then we can process that. But the whole point is that we can use those recordings to get a profile the subsurface you get as many of those profiles as you can you do it all over vancouver and then you say based on those profiles hey this area is more at risk of amplification this area is less we know this 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 we can confirm it with boreholes that have already been drilled that might have been drilled in the past nearby we want to fill in those gaps fill in those holes um, to get the best clearest picture of as we can of the subsurface um so chris is it you personally who goes to vancouver and does this in the field yeah so usually there's a field season that runs every july so we've done this twice now a uh, team of us we were i think nine or ten two years ago and then maybe seven or eight last year we go up to Vancouver in a big group and then we plan which sites to go to. Usually if you're doing a big array, so a big setup with the geophones, you want them say up to a hundred meters across, you need to find a big open area in Vancouver. <laughs> Good luck with that. So we do this a lot at schools, for example, or parks and You'll obviously get a lot of curious people wondering what we're doing. You have to try to prevent everyone to be walked from walking through and causing noise that you don't want. Uh, but yeah, so we do that for every month of July. We'll see if this field season still happens. <laughs> I'm not sure. Is uh, it just the people of your lab or do you work with like other teams? It The first year was just our lab. Uh, this past summer, we recruited a few local geophysics students from UBC to come help us out with some of the data collection. Uh, makes it a bit easier and you can save resources that way. Uh, this will probably be going on for another three summers or so. We've mapped a lot of Vancouver, Richmond, Delta, some of North Vancouver. And now we're looking at mapping Surrey next time as well. 
So it's a fairly involved right. project. And then once you get all the data that you do in July, um, what is it that you do for the remainder of the year? There's the fun part. <laughs> Here comes processing the data. So when I said that we need to make a velocity profile, you're making a velocity profile based on a certain type of earthquake waves. There, whenever you have an earthquake, there's actually four main types of waves that occur from it. There are two types that occur the happening through the ground. It'll go all the way through big, deep layers. And there's two that only happen once the wave hits the surface. So the two that go through the ground are called P waves and S waves, which are compression waves and shear waves. So think of the P waves or the compression waves as you taking an accordion and moving this accordion while you're squeezing it together and back or a slinky, for example. And the slinky is just moving across while you're stretching it and compressing it. So they move like that, only in one direction. Whereas the S waves, think of a snake moving through the sand, how it's undulating across the sand as it goes forward. So S waves will do that horizontally and they'll do it vertically. Now, when they hit the surface, all of a sudden that generates new types of waves. One of them is called a Rayleigh wave. And that's, and usually when an earthquake happens, those are the ones you feel because they create the biggest movement. So we look specifically at Rayleigh waves, we measure them, and then from that, we can get a shear wave velocity profile, which is, this is a bit confusing because we're taking these surface waves to get a profile of these shear waves. So we say the shear wave velocity at this layer is 300 meters per second. The shear wave velocity at this layer is 400 meters per second. And from that, we give that information to engineers, planners, things like that. And the reason we do that is because shear waves, or those S waves, the ones with the snake undulating, are the ones that we can use to best represent what kind of response a building is going to have. So a building will respond a certain way to shaking. And S waves are the best way to do that. So what we want more than anything is to know what is the shear wave velocity, or at what speed do these S waves travel through each layer. That's the whole point of what I'm trying to do. And it gets a bit complicated sometimes in certain places like North Vancouver, where all of a sudden the ground's not just horizontal layers. That's the ideal case where every layer is just nice and flat and horizontal. But obviously some places you get faults, you get uh, layers that dip really quickly where the ground is just not nice and flat below the surface. And so that adds a bunch of complications. So my thesis specifically looks at those sites that are a bit more iffy to work with, with for what we do. But I'm just a small part right. of the, the um, cog here. So as I was researching about geophysics, this was new to me, I imagined perhaps your work was a lot more theoretical only. But clearly, you go out in the field, you, you explore actual landscapes, and then you models of a certain specific geological space or area. And that must be, how, how could you say something about 
your experience as a researcher of going out there, how it might be a bit different from a lot of other people who do, say, France. Yeah. <laughs> and I think mean, about some research, but. I mean, there's a reason I got into geophysics in the first place. I started out doing astrophysics, actually. My first three years of school wow. were in that. And it got really abstract and theoretical to me. And I just needed something that took me out in the field or something a bit more concrete. And that brought me to geology. And then after a year in geology, I found you can actually use both pretty well. And seismology is a good way to do it. Um, if you go into geology or geophysics specifically, even geophysics has a ton of different ways that gets you out in the field. Geophysics isn't just seismics. It's not just earthquakes. It's You can look at magnetics, look at how measuring magnetic fields. You can look at density fields, so gravity surveys. Uh, you can, oh, there's a whole bunch of different things you could do. So a lot of it's related to exploration. I wanted to get a bit more into the hazard side of things, public policy, things like that. But there's a lot of different things you right. can do with it, with it. Even just within our lab, actually, there's so many different roles. One person looks specifically at landslides. One person looks specifically at liquefaction. I look at ground motion amplification. Uh, one other person is looking specifically at, once we have all this information, how do we communicate it effectively to the public? That's what I was actually going to uh, ask you, um, because obviously these things need to be um, sort of consolidated together. But then once that's done, how do you get it out to, you know, like city planners, for example, and like, what do you hope that they do with it? Yeah. So at the end of the day, city planners would use it to say, okay, which areas are the largest hazard areas? Where would we send emergency services first? Where engineers would use it to say, um, we can only build buildings to certain specifications in different areas. So you need to provide different types of data sets to these different groups of people. And the public, if you give the public an area of, or a map that gives you peak frequency, peak frequency versus um, area, that, I mean, that's not gonna tell anybody anything, right? So we need to give it in such a way that is intuitive, that people won't just look at it and go, what? So actually that's one, another master's student here, uh, Meredith Fife is doing. She's looking at communicating this information as effectively as possible. So she's had several meetings with city planners, engineers, things like that, just looking at how do you want these maps presented? Uh, even what colors to use in the maps? How, does, how would the public like it to be presented to them? And we send out surveys to see how they'd like it as well. So I look a bit more into the data, into the nitty gritty, but we also need to look at what to do with it. So those, when, when you look at the earthquake or earthquake Canada, earthquakes Canada, um, you look at hazard maps, often they'll just have it on a color scale from low to high. And that's something at the end of the day that you might need for an end product. If not Vancouver, is there any other location in particular that you are 
interested in that if you, you wish you could go there and do your um, modeling over there. Uh, do you have some other locations that you, you would be um, to do later on? <laughs> That's a big question. There's areas that are obviously at risk that there's already lots going on there. Um, I'd love to do look at California. It's also looking at the similar fault zones. So I'd be comfortable there. New Zealand is a super interesting area um, geologically and seismically. So that'd be really cool to look at it there. And they also had a pretty significant earthquake not too long ago with the Christchurch earthquake. So they are being proactive about it as well. Um, a few places in Europe as well are have more intercrustal, less subduction earthquakes that are interesting as well. Um, Chile has a lot of subduction earthquakes. Um, and actually my supervisor did a lot of work in Chile as well. So there's the options are open. I just have to go where the earthquakes are. <laughs> Nick, and I guess after, uh, after your master's, what are you sort of interested in doing? Ideally, I would be working with city planners or government in a hazard capacity. I, I would definitely like to continue doing that, looking at earthquake hazards. For example, Ocean Networks Canada um, is a not-for-profit out west that's currently working on an early earthquake warning system mm -hmm. for Vancouver and Vancouver Island. Uh, things like that that I find are important that we we need i mean vancouver's last big mega thrust earthquake happened in the year 1700 um, and it was assumed or approximated to be about magnitude eight so this is big an earthquake that big or magnitude nine earthquake in vancouver right now would be huge and it's been estimated to about 75 billion dollars worth of damage not including everything else. So there's a lot of work there to be done and there's different estimates, but another earthquake of that magnitude could happen anywhere within the next 50 to 200 years or immediately to the next 250 years. It will happen. It has to happen. So might as well be prepared for it. And on that happy note, that's all the time that we have for our episode today. Um, thank you so much, Chris, for being on the show. Happy, my pleasure. This, uh, yeah. Unique uh, setting here. This is uh, me. Yeah. <laughs> our first episode uh, <laughs> under quarantine. <laughs> so thanks for being the guinea pig. I hope it works out. <laughs> yeah. Second, second. Oh, fair enough. This has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Nick, and my co-host nice. was... Yusuf, yes. And we've been speaking with Chris today, and this episode was produced by Gavin Tolomitti. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. If you'd like to follow us, you can do so on Instagram to... Um, if you'd like to follow us, you can do so on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Gradcast Radio. And to listen to us live, we're on radio at CHRW 94.9 FM. 
and all our old episodes you can find at our website gradcast.ca. We also have um, episodes on different podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great night.